You're listening to Sounds of Berkeley. I'm Rob Hoschild, and this week we're fortunate to have with us on the Berkeley campus Don Was, the great producer, bassist, songwriter, band leader, and all-around musical rebel. He's working one-on-one with students majoring in music production and engineering, and he's graciously agreed to talk about it all with us here today in Berkeley Studio B. Don, thanks so much for your time. Hey, Rob, it's a pleasure. Thank you, man. So you're about a day into your visit here. In what sorts of ways are you working with Berkeley students this week? Well, there's a lot of improvising. <laughs> uh, uh, so far, the, the bulk of it has been working with the, uh, the senior-most students, and they're all working on, uh, on making records as, a, as their thesis, or whatever you'd call it. And, uh, and just any questions they have about it, just just listening to it, analyzing what they've got, uh, What's amazing is they're, they're all really good. That's what, that's what blows my mind. They don't need a whole lot of guidance on anything. The, the, most of these people are making world-class records. Stuff you could hear easily hear on the radio and uh, a number of things. Uh, if I heard it, I'd, I'd buy it. So in terms of styles of music or, or sounds you're hearing in these recordings, what, what's sort of on the palette? There's everything, man. It ranged from... Uh, Sludge rock to uh, to uh, neo soul gospel, all of it really good. Um, that's that's strong testimony to the program here. That uh, the most important thing is is finding uh, your own identity as as an artist and and finding a voice. And everyone I met was well down that path, which is, that's a great thing. That shows that the you're doing it right here. So what kind of nuggets of constructive criticism do you pass along to these folks after you hear their music? Well, I told one guy last night, <laughs> he played me all this stuff, and he and he's good at a number of things. You know, he's a serious contender, this guy. And, uh, but he's primarily, he came out of church, you know, gospel singing and, and playing. And that, that that really permeated his work. So even though he could write a country song and even though he could write different kinds of songs, his strength, was he seemed to pick up on the like neo-soul out of Philadelphia and gospel music. So, and he was kind of, more than wanting to know whether, you know, I should, he should make the drums louder in his mix, he wanted to know what to do next. Hmm. And I said, well, look, if someone kidnapped my family and said they were going to kill him unless I made a hit record with you, my surest bet would be to cut a neo-soul gospel album with you. So that's, I guess that's what I think you should do. Uh-huh. That's, who, that's really who you are. Play to your strengths. You know, that, that, you can do all this other stuff that's great, and, and I'm sure someday it'll all come into play. But it's a competitive business. P- play to your strengths. So that was cool. You know, that, I thought that that was really, you know, as as gratifying for me to be able to, to help him because he knew that. He just needed someone to reaffirm it. Uh, there was a guy who uh, played, played me the, the things he'd recorded and he'd written them. He was singing them, playing the guitar on them. And there's a bass player and a drummer from the school. But he's already got a job as an engineer. And I think he, he was torn between whether to pursue engineering or pursue performing. And uh, it's really clear he should pursue performing. Hmm. So I told him that. You know, and if it, had it been the opposite, 
uh, you know, if the thing would have sounded amazing, but maybe the song writing wasn't so good, I'd have told him that too, you know. But it's clear that this guy should perform. The mystery now, of course, is that the the music business that everyone's geared themselves for doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's really it's changed so much in the last five years um, that you really have to. You, people certainly will always make records. I, I can't guarantee that anyone's going to make a living from making records anymore, let alone get rich. You know, uh, and and uh, I, I think the stress has to be so much more on, on building an audience for yourself as a live performer. That's about the only way you can be assured that you're going to. Uh, build a, a career and a, that's not charity work you know? <laughs> um, but recording is an important part of that uh, so certainly not to, to discourage anyone from making records but to encourage everyone to get out there and start playing as much as they can too that that's something that, that came up that's something that that's that's been sort of universal in all the discussions no matter what you're doing how do you apply this to uh, live performance well, and you're one of those guys who certainly has had multiple career paths and been a performer, been a producer, songwriter, continues to do all those things. Yeah. Are, do those experience, uh, experiences come into play? Uh, like your work as a performer, how does that inform your work as a producer and the way you've gone about that career and vice versa, your work as a producer inform your career as a performer and recording artist? Well, I think it's really important to understand what goes through the musician's mind, you know, when they're or what doesn't go through their mind when they're playing music mm -hmm. and and how you know just how how exposed a musician is when you stand there and you and you perform something for for somebody one person a hundred thousand people doesn't matter you're really putting yourself out in the line if you're doing it right and that's a really vulnerable position to put yourself in just for the sake of entertaining people you know mm. <laughs> and uh Conversely, if you're in the studio and you don't know what that feels like, you can do some really uh, counterproductive things. I've been produced as an artist and and have had uh, various experiences with it, you know, including some bad ones where where you really where you sit down and you play something and you and you know when it's good. You really do. You know when you when you when you were in the moment. And you don't really need anyone to tell you that you were, to be honest with you. When when you when everyone hits the thing, people know it. Um, and then to have someone on the other side of the glass not push that button and say that was that was amazing, just start to to be greeted by thirty seconds of silence in the headphones, and then some, uh, you know, full affect voice saying, uh, "Let's try another one," with no direction or anything. Like that. You pretty, you pretty much lose your musicians at that point. Mm. Uh, so it's really important to understand that. If, if you're trying to coax a performance out of a singer, you can't say, that sucks, man. You know, come on, put yourself into it. You know, you pretty much bring the session to a close with that. So in your work as a producer, how do you develop those skills? Did that come from being on the other side? both sides of the glass or learning from your mistakes or just developing some sort of understanding of human nature and psychology? Well, all the above, yeah. Plus, uh, having a, a father who uh, was a good diplomat, you know, a, 
a mother who was a tough customer <laughs> and, a, and a dad who taught me how to be a diplomat at home. And uh, I, I think that carried over into the thing. Yeah, I think you have to have somewhat of a predisposition to diplomacy, but it, it serves you well if you want to be a producer. So it all goes back to good upbringing, embodying the best attributes of your parents in the recording studio. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, I, I suppose you're right. You know, when I think about it now, uh, you know, my, my mom was a, an aggressive go-getter, but you have to be. You have to be a self-starter. It, it was noticeable that when, when uh, the instructor yesterday asked the kids, all right, who, who brought in the, their, uh, you know, their projects to play today? That a lot of them didn't, and they knew I was coming. And but they had excuses. Well, you know, I got there at, at two in the morning, and the singer was tired. And you know, uh, uh. <laughs> I said, well, one guy forgot something. Some, you know, I mean, it's just like like the classic excuses you hear. But I don't know what it, what it was serving. You know, I mean, it's not like. You're trying to go on to medical school from here, and you got to get an A in the class. You know, I don't think that the grades are, are the thing. It's it's why would you miss the experience of finishing your your rec? Someone's letting you go in the studio, and it and if you don't take full advantage of that, if you're here, and and you're you know upstairs, you know watching CNN or something instead of being down in the studios, then then you're, you're missing something attitude wise. There's the th the thing that's mind blowing about this place uh, is the, uh, is the the amount of opportunity that's available to everybody. I mean, this is just an amazing resource for uh, you know. I wish I lived here. You know, even if I'm not a student, you know, just to be able to go downstairs and play with people. You know, but you know, at eleven o'clock at night to see these bands rehearsing in little rooms and everyone's having fun and. It's a it's a great great opportunity. So tying tying it back to your question, my mother was a self starter and an aggressive person, and she'd uh, taken advantage of every second here. But she's a firecracker, and so and my dad knew how to keep the peace without having the, the house explode, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of all you need to do as a record producer. <laughs> 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 but you need both of those skills. Yes, yeah, so I, I had to. The right parents for the gig. Yeah. So, were there some critical moments early in your career as a producer where you sort of learned those lessons the hard way, or sort of turned a corner in being able to know what the right thing to do was in the studio? Well, you never know, you know. But the the most important lesson really is treat everyone the way you want to be treated. I think it applies to much more than a recording session. You know, it's a really smart way to go through life. You know, it's uh, it seems kind of obvious, but it doesn't happen. And if you, I worked with so many artists that were supposed to be difficult, whose reputations preceded them into the studio, and and you know would send terror through the musicians and the assistants. And if you treated them respectfully, there was never an incident. I've never had like a huge blowout with an artist, ever, you know? And I, I've, I've been doing this a long time. It just never came to that because I didn't treat anybody like that. If I didn't respect them enough to, to treat them decently, I shouldn't be producing their record. Mm. This guy Jimmy Iovine once told me, uh, he said, never produce 
someone that you mind losing an argument to. It, yeah, it's a quadruple negative. <laughs> but what it means is if you, if you don't respect your artist enough to, to have them overrule you, to, to argue passionately for what you think about the thing, but be willing to yield to them, then, then you shouldn't be producing that artist. If it gets frustrating in the studio, sometimes I just close my eyes and I think, all right, let's see. What's so bad about all this? How's the temperature in here? Yeah, it feels pretty good. You know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not shivering and I'm not you know, sweating too much. It's, it's okay. How's your, how's your body feel? Yeah, my back hurts a little bit, but yeah, I feel, I feel pretty good. I'm awake. I'm not sick. I feel good. But by the time you get about five down the list, you know, how's it smell in here? Yeah, I like, it smells like a studio. Yeah. By the time you get to number five, you're feeling you can pretty much get over whatever's bugging you. And you just and and you're feeling really positive. I used to there's a bit of egomania involved in this, but it was a good way to to think. You know, I I do believe that uh, that your self transcends your skin, which means that if you're affecting areas outside of your body, how far can you extend that? You know, I used to sit in, in sessions. This is like in the early '90s, and it was a room. You know, it's a working rooms about this size. I used to think. I, if the session wasn't going right, I was going to start transforming the space outside my body with positive energy. Wow. And I just try to think really positive stuff and try to move it around the room. It may just be science fiction, but I was still spreading a positive attitude around the room. And at least I was projecting that. And, you know, people can look at you and pick up your energy Definitely pick up your pick up on your attitude, and it can change them. So even if the the science was a bit <laughs> uh, specious, it was it was it's a good way to get yourself positive and to impact others. There, there's a session I did once with Iggy Pop, and Iggy was upset about something. He thought he'd offended John Hyatt. That's what happened because John Hyatt came in while we were eating. And we were going to cut a John Hyatt song, and John was going to play, but he, but we waited for him. It wasn't Iggy's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. Was this for Brick by Brick? Yeah. Yeah, we did a song called Something Wild. It's on the album. And John was going to show up and play with us because he's in the next studio. And by the time he got there, we were eating dinner, and he split. He split because he was tired. It was the end of the day, and we were eating dinner. But Iggy thought he'd done something to offend John Hyatt, and he felt really sad about that. We, so we didn't going to cut that song at that time but we started another song called home and uh he was bummed out kenny aronoff who was a drummer picked up on that and he decided that he was going to change the mood immediately and he started playing with such positive energy and such a vibe that iggy did a 180 in about 20 seconds hmm. And that's, it, that song went on to, be, uh, became the first single off the album. And uh, it was Slash and Duff and uh, Kenny Aronoff and Iggy playing guitar and singing all in the room. And I saw, I watched this guy just completely turn the thing around with the spirit of his playing. And there's nothing, uh, this is not mysticism, man. This is just, you know, the same thing would happen if you got a little kid who cuts his knee and he's crying and you tell a few jokes and cheer him up. You can change someone's mood very quickly. And that's all this was. But he did it through music and, and transformed the session. So the, I try to remember that, you know. You got to keep people in, in 
in the, the right place where they want to make great music. You mentioned your parents. I'd like to you to talk a little bit about your days coming up in Detroit and, yeah. and how all of that impacted the musician you've become. Yeah, well, it had a huge impact. I'm, I'm really grateful to have been in that place at that time. It, uh, everything you got to know probably is that the Stooges played at my high school and and the parliaments, George Clinton and the parliaments, which at that time was a, they were a five-piece doo-wop vocal band, but they were dressed like hippies. And they came in and, and lip-synced, I just want to testify, at a sock hop in the upper gym. And they blew everybody's minds because it was, it was synchronous with uh, Hendrix. They, they weren't copping Hendrix. It was just an overall thing that was in the air for everybody at that time. But you just didn't see doo-wop. The Temptations didn't, were still wearing fur coats. The, the, they didn't come in all hippified like that. Right. So... That, that was the environment. It was wildly contrasting. Add to that an amazing jazz scene, uh, you know, where it was possible for me as a 14-year-old to go down to the Drome Lounge and hear John Coltrane play. Mm. And, uh, you know, I got to see Coltrane. I got to see the Miles Quintet, you know, with Herbie and uh, Wayne and all those guys. Uh, got to see that group several times. Uh, Charles Lloyd with Keith Jarrett and uh, Jack DeJohnette. Wow, lucky uh, kid. Yeah, no, there's great music to, to be heard traveling through. And the local guys were heavy-duty guys. You know, Yusuf Latif. And, uh, I mean, the, the, the people who came out of that scene came out of Detroit. It's quite a jazz city. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I grew up in the middle of that. And, the, I, and you would see cross-pollination between these people. I did go downtown one time and see the MC5 jamming with Pharaoh Saunders. That was pretty deep. Wow. Just in some club, at, you know. It wasn't a club. It was like a, a print shop. <laughs> you know, it was just some crazy hippie thing, right? So the idea at the time was that anything was possible. The goal was to do something that no one else had ever done before. It's a really noble goal. Uh, and I don't mean just the, that the artist hasn't done before. Don't repeat your last album. But let's do something that no one's heard before. That's a very exciting thing when you pull it off. It's really energizing, although it's not necessarily the wisest commercial step. But it, it affected you in that you became this person who had a kind of inbred eclecticism. Uh, eclecticism. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And you're, um, it, you know, I mean, it, in fact, I wrote this down from one of your interviews. You described uh, the music of was not was as a jambalaya that got cooked in Detroit, or that got. Cooked in Detroit, and in another case, a Motown review on acid. Yeah, well, that, that was our goal, yeah. So when you and David and the rest of the band sat down and started putting it all together, how did it, how did all that really fuse and become sort of one thing or multiple streams of one thing? That's a, that's a very good question. When, when we first started out, the first record we made was called Wheel Me Out, and it was a dance 12-inch, and it had a groove that worked in any disco in the world. If you just got to the section of the 12-inch, that, that was just groove. But the things that were on top of it, there was a pretty abstract uh, bit of beat poetry read by David's mom as, as the lyric. And it was followed by a, a bebop trumpet solo over the groove by a guy named Marcus Belgrave, who played with Charles Mingus and Ray Charles, a great uh, jazz trumpeter, followed by... A searing guitar solo from Wayne Kramer of the MC5. 
And, you know, I, I used to go to clubs in Detroit. I actually, I used to hang out at the, at the, at the, the black gay clubs, which were really, that's where the great music was. And I used to sit there with a, a little Walkman tape recorder. And when the floor was crowded, I'd turn that on to see what was working. And I became pretty friendly with the, uh, you know, with the DJs there. And used to have them come to the studio. And man, they when that electric guitar solo came on, they would say, "Ooh, turn that off!" You know, they hated that. You know, and they, and they didn't really didn't care for the bebop solo. But we were trying to do something different. And a DJ, well, we made a dub side for DJs. So you don't like that stuff? Great, turn the record over, and you can play with the groove all night long. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, but we we were trying for. The, we're just trying to sum up our, our roots, really, in, in one thing. When we started, I think you could hear the seams. It was pretty good. You listen to that record, you can really hear the seams. And I, I know right where the edits are. Because <laughs> it wasn't, like, played live like that. You know, it was a lot of over... I don't think anyone was in the studio at the same time for that. It was one person at a time. We released an album this year. First one in 16 years. And uh, I think... We we achieved that oh, that seamless thing. There's a, it sounds like was not was. You know, there's a there's a sound. It doesn't sound like we scotch taped all these different styles together. But it took a while. You've been listening to the first part of an interview with the great producer Don Was, conducted at Berkeley in November 2008. In the second part of our interview, Was talks about working with artists such as the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and Bonnie Raitt. For Sounds of Berkeley, I'm Rob Hoschild. Yeah.